Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Charlene Gilbert to our show. Dr. Gilbert is the Dean of the College of Arts and Letters at the University of Toledo in Toledo, Ohio. Hi, Charlene. I'm excited to have you on our podcast today. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So can you tell me about your college and why students select your institution? Sure. Um, I'm the Dean of the College of Arts and Letters. College of Arts and Letters is um, home to all the arts humanities, and most of the social sciences at the university. We have uh, 32 majors in the college. We have uh, about 23 different um, master degree programs. We have three doctoral programs. Uh, and um, we have just over 1,300 students in the college. Um, and I think that students select this college for a number of reasons. One, we have excellent faculty um, that are um, some of the top researchers in the field. But in addition to that, we have faculty that are very focused on teaching excellence. And that's actually one of my highest priorities. Uh, when I am recruiting new faculty, I want top scholars, but I also want people who are able to engage students in the classroom and um, be um, you know, effective, engaged, exciting instructors like that, that, that piece is absolutely critical to the experience of our students and um, our mission. So that, that, that combination, I think, has led to some real significant successes for our students and faculty. And, um, and it's one of the things I'm most proud of. Um, I think students come to us because they can, there are a number of different degrees in the liberal arts. Um, some of the things that they share is that they give students um, strong, critical, um, thinking skills, it gives students strong writing skills, strong communication skills, uh, problem solving, um, teamwork, collaboration. And I feel like you get that, that course of skills from nearly every major in the college. And so while students may be, uh, they come here to maybe be a psychology major, if that doesn't work out, they may move to sociology, they may move to disability studies, but they, they, what they all are having access to are these degrees that really prepare them for a dynamic world in terms of the uh, types of jobs and expectations in the workforce in the 21st century. And I think students realize that they're getting that kind of preparation and they have that kind of opportunity. Um, in addition, our college provides um, you know, a lot of support for students to do undergraduate research. We provide a lot of um, uh, attention to in the experiences both in the classroom and outside of the classroom. Um, I think students from our region are attracted to the university. We also are beginning to attract students actually from all over the U.S., which is kind of exciting. Um, and we have some new programs and some unique programs that are only found here at the university, including we have the only uh, disability studies major in the state. We have the only law and social thought major. Our disability studies major is, um, is probably the premier, I would argue the premier uh, program in the country that's been a model for other people trying to create um, that, that area of study in their own institutions. Um, um, we all, and, we all, and we have um, uh, a pretty uh, cool uh, backed in, in, um, baccalaureate degree to MD program that mm. students in our college are eligible to participate in. We also have a, a, a pathway for students who want to go to law school. Um, if you're particularly really focused, you can do it in what's called a three plus three um, opportunity that gets you to law school after three years of your undergraduate degree. 
We also have a preferred um, admission consideration for our law school. If you come here, you can major in any one of our degrees and, and um, get access to that program as well. So we have a lot of just um, great opportunities, academic opportunities for our students. And again, lots of um, opportunities uh, outside the classroom for enrichment and support and the kind of the kind of opportunities that we know define a high quality education. So um, I think that's a, that's enough for now. <laughs> so so can you elaborate a teeny bit on that disability studies? Oh, that seems really interesting. Sure. Um, uh, we have a pro. We, um, uh, gosh, I'm going to say maybe 2007, 2008, uh, somewhere around 2000, 2008, the disability studies program began, uh, thanks to a generous gift from the Ability Center of Greater Toledo, and that allows to hire a faculty member, and then it allows to hire a few, actually a few core faculty members and develop a major, and uh, that program has been experiencing um, incredible sort of growth um, as more and more students are finding out about it. And what they really focus on is, is trying to um, re, they think about disability, not in the medical model, but in a cultural and um, socially constructed way of thinking and thinking about um, the ways in which um, what we consider a disability uh, is really sort of uh, similar to what we consider to be race and gender and that these things are fluid and rapidly changing and changing uh, and as society changes and rethinks um, the world we live in. And so that that has been really um, an exciting field. And they have been able to attract, that department has attracted some top scholars, including Kim Nielsen, who is an historian. Uh, she does a lot of work in Helen Keller and is um, internationally known. And she is the chair of the department. Um, and we have faculty in the social sciences, the humanities, um, faculty with interdisciplinary backgrounds teaching in, in that program. And uh, it's been really, it's been uh, just really wonderful to see um, how that program is generating a, a whole new uh, cohort of students who leave with that background who are then going, we have one of our graduates, the uh, works in, um, at, uh, has a position at the local museum, the Toledo Museum of Art, which is a premier museum working on issues of how do you make the museum space more accessible. We have graduates working um, in um, working around student services and, and disability in university. We have graduates that have gone on to law school in that program. So the the breadth uh, of opportunities for students with that uh, degree is significant, and um, we are really pleased to be seeing those students that are out in the world making a difference with this knowledge that you know when we start to you know they're asking good questions about what does it mean. What does universal design mean for spaces? But what does it mean for the way we engage with each other? What does it mean for workplaces? What does it mean for um, educational institutions? And so I think we have uh, good people um, that we're training who are doing good work and finding great opportunities um, when, when they leave here with that degree. What a wonderful idea for a degree program. I And, and truly, when, uh, uh, how you put it, is I was thinking the medical side. I wasn't thinking the cultural side. So what a, what a wonderful idea. Um, can you talk a little bit about what's new on campus? Do you have any current or future programs going on, facilities being built, different services being provided? Sure. We um, have a new uh, uh, relaunched Master of Public Administration program, um, and we were really excited to relaunch that program, and then COVID hit, and we were uh, really, like, just dreading what that might mean. Um, you know, it was, as you remember, may remember, that was quite a, that, that spring, we, you know, we were just knocked off our feet and didn't really know what we were to, what we could expect. 
fortunately, we decided to go ahead, even though we'd be doing the program entirely online because of the COVID uh, and the pandemic. Um, and we did, and the program has been uh, uh, just experiencing tremendous success. So we've met all the targets we have for enrollment goals as we relaunched the program. Uh, it's a very popular program. We're working with a lot of um, both students, but a lot of uh, working professionals and students who have work experience and decide they wanna get their master's of public administration degree. We have a lot of our alums from that program in the local working in city government, county government all around, around the area. So th that creates some great opportunities and some great synergy for our students. Um, we have some really tremendous faculty teaching in the program. Um, and so that, that, that program um, is definitely um, one that, um, that we feel is uh, has a lot of potential for additional growth and we are, we're looking forward to seeing it continue to grow. Um, we also uh, launched last year, again, I think it, it overlapped with COVID, so we, it was not really a full launch, but we have a new major in data analytics. Um, so we, um, um, uh, I co-led an effort to get the data science and data analytics degree um, here and we are the second university in the state to have an undergraduate degree in data analytics. Um, so the data science degree is in our College of Natural Science and Mathematics, and the data analytics degree is in our College of Arts and Letters. Um, and on both degrees, um, we, we want the students to, stand, um, to have some training in ethics and thinking about like, you know, the ethics of using data um, as a sort of a foundational place to start. And then we have the students in the um, data analytics program. The data analytics major are really students who are going to be helping. Um, we imagine that these are students that will be use their training to help nonprofit groups, government agencies, individuals, businesses use all of the data that's out there and to leverage that um, to make um, core business decisions and policy decisions. Um, the people doing the data science degree are, are, are might be people who might be working more back of the house to kind of build the architectural framework for um, a data lake. Um, um, for sure. So, so um, really excited about that. Um, I feel like students with training in the liberal arts are uh, particularly well prepared to kind of think about how do you how do you use leverage and make the best use of the immense amounts of data. Um, that's out there about um, each of us as individuals, as consumers, as human beings. Sure. Well, I think in higher ed, you know, we're, it used to be subjective. We'd go out and talk to the community, kind of what's going on. Now we look at the data that says, what are the skills really needed and things like that. So I think you guys are point on what's needed in the future for sure. Good for you guys. You. Um, how about, let's talk a little bit about yourself and the path that led you to become the Dean of the University of Toledo. Sure. Um, uh, before I was a dean at the university, I was a dean at Ohio State University. Uh, I was dean of a regional campus there. That was my first dean position, and it was a wonderful opportunity um, uh, to, to um, sort of cut my teeth on the world of being a dean. Um, prior to that, I was um, uh, the founding director for a school, and I've been chair of the Department of Women's and Gender Studies for three years. And um, and so the, I, I think for me, my path to uh, administration happened after I got, I, was, I got tenure when I was at American University. I came up for tenure early. And at the time you weren't allowed to go on sabbatical early. So I came up for tenure early, got tenure, but then I still had to work another year before I could go on sabbatical. So I spent that year doing administrative work and, um, and discovered that I kind of liked it and it seemed like I was good at it. And, uh, and then also made a personal decision about kind of where I wanted to raise my girls. And I have two daughters and, um, 
and that that combined those two decisions combined with kind of uh, thinking about the possibilities nationally and making a list of what was my priorities led me to the University of Toledo and it's been a wonderful ride so far. So so that transition because I remember what it was like when when you move away from the faculty side and I, and I remember uh, my first meeting and this was before I was a dean was I was an associate dean and that group saying welcome to the dark side. I mean it was yeah. just like what but I, I get that. It's a, it's kind of a scary thing to make that transition. It is. Yeah. I don't like that. Welcome to the dark side. I know thing. they think it's funny. It was not funny when it was told to me. Tell you it was because I'm thinking, what yeah. have I just done? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, you know, I think a, a, a famous writer, Tony K. Bambara, I think her, she had a quote that said, you can't leave the arena to the <coughs> And yeah. so some way she's like, you know, you either got to get in there or, you know, so yeah. it's important that, that those of us who really believe in the power of public higher education, the transformative power of public higher education, um, I think it's important to have that perspective in the leadership of organizations and institutions um, because um, I, I think it's essential to the future of these institutions. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Um, do, you, um, do you still step in a classroom? No, not, not, you know, I was, um, I was a single mom for many years and I had two kids and I was doing this job and I really, um, it, that was all I could manage, but I am, I'm now an empty nester and I'm really looking forward to going back in the classroom the next yeah. year. Yeah. See that, that's the part I like about when you watch, because there's so many different ways to get up to, to, to administration anymore, you know, non-traditional traditional, but those, those traditional ranks, everybody who I've ever talked to who was a professor, always misses those classes a little bit and which still keeps you connected with faculty and really what the parents and the students really need. So good for you. That's exciting. So let me, I'll be interested in when that happens. You got to email me and let me know when you step in the classroom again. I will. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So who's been the biggest professional influence in your academic career and why do they have such an impact? Biggest professional impact. In other words, because you jumped, you know, so was it an individual or was that just you who decided to make that jump from faculty administration? I think that was really, you know, I, 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 um, the dean I worked for was a dean named Larry Kirkman at um, um, American University. He was, he was fabulous and um, really uh, just, uh, you know, just uh, did, I thought he did the job really well. But I think for me, it was really just um, the sense once I started doing a lot of administrative work that one year, I just decided that I actually liked it and I hmm. seemed to be kind of good at it. Um, okay. And that was really the impetus for me um, to kind of make that decision. And then when I got to the University of Toledo, I really understood in a really deep and, proud, deep and profound way the importance and significance of public higher education in America. So I, um, while I got my own undergraduate degree from a private institution and I was at American University as a private university, it wasn't until I got here that I realized, wow, you know, this this is the part of public, this is the part of higher education where uh, the the really big lift is being done in terms of creating opportunities for social mobility for students, creating opportunities for uh, sort of a multiracial democratic society. Um, this is where that work is really being done, and this this the importance became really central to me, and it became in many ways became my you know this is my life's work. Like, um, 
yeah, I, I realized that this is, you know, everyone has to find that thing that you feel like you can make the greatest impact, through which you can make the greatest impact. And it became clear to me that working in public higher education, um, making sure that we are delivering on the promise to our students, um, that that was really the, 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 the that's the work that I um, had set sort of um, decided to do. And it was the work that felt most important and the work where I felt like I'd have the most impact. And um, it's been an honor and a privilege to be able to do it. Good for you. Um, what's your biggest challenges right now as a dean? I, I know that's I, a loaded question. Yeah. So I think resources always are the biggest challenges for deans. I think trying to, you know, we have a lot of pressure on our institutions. Um, we have, um, you know, decreasing support for higher education. Uh, you know, in the last 10 years, if you look at the trend line, you, you know, uh, you have declining enrollments, decreasing state support. Um, it's just uh, we have fewer and fewer resources to do some of the things that we like to do in higher education. And so that is, um, that's a real challenge. And um, figuring out, figuring out how to continue to provide a high quality education to support your faculty and support your students uh, and to achieve all of your goals. <laughs> and then do that on 10% on less money than you had the year before. So sure. I that that's the that's the real challenge, and you know, uh, it's um it, it's we're figuring it out, and we and you know we're figuring out new solutions, and we're figuring out ways to kind of address that. But I think resource acquiring resources and resource allocation are probably the biggest challenge I face as a dean. Well, well, let's pretend that uh, I'm going to give you a bunch of extra budget money, no strings attached, to fix a little bit of those problems. So, so where would you spend it? What would you do with that? Mm. I would create a, a fund to um, support students so that students could graduate debt-free. I would, um, uh, you know, right now, if I had that money, I'd be able to probably help 20 students continue their education uh, that are not going to be able to continue their education because of uh, debt levels. Uh, and, uh, and that's just for the entering class. I mean, there's even more students out there who are struggling and um, and I would like to, if I had all the money in the world, I, I would address that um, structurally first to um, mm -hmm. make sure the students were able to access higher education without going into deep debt and without being deterred because of the cost of the education. Well, because of your background uh, as an academic leader, um, I guess my question is, what do you think are the most important qualities for someone to excel as a college dean? I think they have, I think some of the qualities are you should uh, have, um, you should be organized, <laughs> you should be uh, passionate about higher education, uh, you should be, um, so, you know, I think uh, being, um, uh, uh, you know, focused on the, on supporting and nurturing faculty, um, uh, patience, uh, balance you know i think that the you know having a uh, staying you know that mug like about like stay calm and carry on really really important <laughs> you must stay calm and carry on um uh and uh i think integrity is absolutely critical for me personally that's one of my uh first core values um uh okay. yeah those are a few things you need to be yeah. successful yeah, I was happy that you mentioned faculty. Sometimes when I ask that question, everybody, and rightfully so, 
promotes, we need to be student-centered and we need to do all those. And, and they kind of forget it's the faculty who does all those things. So I, I appreciate you mentioning the faculty as a, as a go-to on that. Um, how do you continue to learn in order to stay on top of things as an academic leader? What do you um, do? I go to my national conference, the Council of Colleges of Arts and Sciences. I go to that almost every year. I find it tremendously helpful to stay on top of different areas in, um, that impact my college and impact leadership. And so that one's really critical. Um, I have a strong network of professional leaders that I've been, that I've been working with um, mm. uh, out of uh, being part of the Kellogg National Leadership Fellowship Program many years ago. And that group has been absolutely essential to just helping me think and support, supporting me and thinking about um, bigger issues in society that, that then have an impact on the work we do here in, the, in higher education and co in my college. Um, I read the Chronicle. I read, you yeah. know, I'm, um, I, you know, if you go to my home, there are various issues of the Chronicle. I mean, actually between walking in the door of my office suite here and my home, there will be various issues of the Chronicle around. <laughs> like, I can read it anytime. And so I'm constantly, you know, paying attention there. And then I also do a lot of um, just continuing ongoing professional development, yeah. constantly like um, um, develop, um, pursuing my own research interests in higher education oh, as well. Good. Yeah. A lot of times um, nobody seems to have time to, to keep trying to learn. They're just trying to tread water and keep their head above water. So. Okay, um, let's let's change topics here. What suggestions do you have to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion on college campuses? Um, I think um, you know diversifying the faculty is really important. So you, we want to make sure that there's our the students have opportunities to, to take advantage of the excellence that you can find in, in all communities. Um, I think making sure that um, that people are intentional and in thinking about how do you create a space where everyone feels included, um, where there's a sense of belonging and support and um, celebration and, um, uh, and, and thinking about kind of how do you create those, uh, those intentional spaces. They don't just happen by themselves. Uh, creating opportunities for students to engage with each other, uh, uh, you know, across communities and, diver and diverse communities. Like I think that, that helps build a stronger community and creates a more vibrant community that then that then attracts more students, right? So um, if you see that it's a vibrant community where there's a commitment to diversity and equity and a sense of belonging, then you wanna come there and be part of that as well. And then it kind of is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, I think, um, um, you know, leadership matters in that in that that realm. So making sure that the the leaders of the institution are clear that this is a priority and um, a priority that will that they're going to commit resources to as well. What do you think are the major challenges and also the opportunities for universities uh, in the future? And let's say in the next five years, where do you think everything's going? Next five years. Well, I, I think one of the things that's going to happen in the next five years is going to be, uh, you know, obviously an increase in people thinking about careers in health uh, and thinking about what that means uh, and, and maybe attracted to or maybe scared off from. But I think that that's going to be a, a focus as we kind of come out of this, this insane moment that we've been living through. Um, I think that there's going to be more I believe, I hope there's going to be more attention to interdisciplinary knowledge production and creation um, and the interdisciplinary experiences for students. I think that, you know, I, 
again, one of the things that we're beginning to get a better understanding for is that complex problems require complex solutions and complex solutions need to draw on many, many different disciplines uh, to be able to really, you know, we need to be able to turn that problem around in lots of different ways. And so I think the kind of training we provide for students will increasingly be one where we're saying, where we ask and train them to do that work of thinking about um, drawing on multiple tools, multiple um, methodologies in order to understand and um, solve problems. So um, I think we'll see more sort of cross-disciplinary work. Um, and I think we're beginning to understand that in order to do that, we also have to make sure the reward system in the academy matches that so that faculty are not penalized for, <laughs> for being interdisciplinary scholars, but actually there, there are pathways and um, mechanisms for that to be um, considered as a, a, um, essential in their evaluation process as they move through the, the ranks of tenure. Um, so uh, many, many years ago, you may remember this, it, it could actually work against you if you were a strong interdisciplinary scholar. People say, well, they're all over the place. <laughs> they really, they didn't, they didn't publish in their key journals. <laughs> and they could be, <laughs> I think we're beginning to kind of like uh, break that, break through on that, but I think a lot more work will happen. And so I think in five years, we'll be further along in that project than we are now. I think the academy is going to look very, it's going to continue to evolve and, and be, um, you know, continue to be more diverse, continue to um, be uh, more, you know, more non-traditional students in, in our classrooms. And I think that that will also begin to shape our teaching um, approaches to teaching and our, and our pedagogy will have to kind of also reflect kind of what the new classroom looks like as we continue to move forward. I think my, my uh, last couple of questions are going to go back to you again. And I'm going to ask you, um, what's been some of your biggest lessons you've learned so far as an academic leader? What could you share? So, so, you know, when you talk about mentorship and I know you, as you've gone to Kellogg and you're learning from others, if somebody sat down with you today and say, Hey, I'm getting ready to start as a new Dean, what advice would you give them? And, and, and basically from the lessons you've learned so far? Um, I think I would, uh, you know, I would really encourage them to, to um, uh, that, that, that be calm and carry on. I, I really do think I would encourage it's a new dean to make sure, you know, all, all deans are going to face a crisis. There's always a crisis. Um, and I think one of the best piece of advice I give is like, you know, take a breath before you respond. Um, things really can be more complicated than they appear at first glance. And so I think it's worthwhile to do your due diligence to kind of, uh, to really try to understand uh, a problem, an issue, a controversy, make sure you get your arms around it. Um, because I think um, sometimes the, um, you know, responding too quickly before you do that work uh, can be a mistake. Um, and I also would encourage um, deans to uh, be fearless, uh, fearless, yeah. uh, and to um, which is hard, but to really think about your your priorities and your values, and to be fearless in in sticking to those. Um, you know, even when when things and waters get choppy, you, I think you need to be able to hold on to that and stay centered. Yeah, I had somebody tell me one time, it's not your job to fix everything. That sometimes you kind of feel like that's what what you were put there to do. So. Um, here's my last question. Uh, do you have any favorite books on leadership that you would recommend to other college deans? Um, oh man, favorite books on leadership. 
you know, I don't, I, that, that's just, uh, I don't know that I would, I do, I don't, I have read a lot of books on leadership, but I think the books that I would recommend that you read to uh, inform your leadership are the, the books that I think are brilliant fiction. Like I, you know, the, my, 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 um, probably my, um, professional mentor for life and friend was a woman named Barbara Neely. And she wrote, um, a mystery series called Blanche on the Lamb. And, um, she was brilliant. She had the most integrity of any human being I've ever had the pleasure of meeting my entire life. She kept me honest. She kept, she demanded, uh, um, she had high expectations of anyone who knew her. And I think reading her books, in her books, there are many, many leadership lessons. And so it's not a leadership book, right. but you want to read a book that's going to um, that's going to push you to think about um, uh, values and uh, democracy and uh, society. And I mean, read read Barbara, read anything Barbara Neely has wrote, and you learn <laughs> from that. Um, and I and I uh, did, and I had the great privilege of just kind of being um, both her colleague and friend and. That's, that's some of the best lessons I got on so many things in life. So yeah, read Barbara Neely. That's my, I yeah, read that as a leadership book. Read Blanche Among the Talented Ten, Blanche on the Lamb, any of the Blanche books. Well, that's a nice I, way to, oh. <laughs> that's a nice way to end our conversation day. Uh, Charlene, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.